Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're here with us this morning. And again, a welcome to you who are on our and our online audience, whether you're listening to us today or watching us today, we're really glad you're joining us uh, today. I suppose many of you are preparing for the sugar rush that's about to take place in the next 24 hours. I know I am. My two little daughters are pumpkin and uh, strawberry princesses today, so I'm very pleased. I was photoing them this morning, so I've had a good start to my day. Well, we're going now back uh, to our series in Romans, back to basics. And so if you've got the scriptures with you, physically or electronically, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 3, please, because that's where we're going to be exploring and sitting and dialoguing today. And again, an amazing, amazing book, and we're just so pleased that God has led us as a community to walk through this. Now, like I said, it's been a few weeks since we've been through this book because we've been going through our DNA series. and. If you weren't here over the last two weeks and you call C4 your home or you're thinking about calling C4 your home, Dave and I, the staff and elders, would ask you to take the time to watch online what was said because we were very clear about where we're about to go and like you to be on the same page as we move forward. But as we get back now to back to basics, let me just do a quick review uh, where we've been. Paul started telling us in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel... The good news of Jesus is the only hope for humanity to deal with our separation from God, ourselves, and each other. Here's how he began the conversation, and he summarized it this way in Romans 1.16. He said, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it has the dynamite. It has the living power of God to bring salvation to anyone who chooses to believe, first for the Jew and then for the non-Jew. Now, he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He, he was not done. He needed to show us the problem. The problem that we all face needed to be addressed. The need for a Savior was given. And, and why did he do this? Because he understood, and I think many of us understand, that the gospel's power can only be demonstrated and displayed in a place of darkness. Paul said in chapter 1, all of humanity is actually under the living wrath of God because we have all turned away from God in our own way. We are all, Paul said, under the dominion of sin. In chapter 2, he talked to his own family, the Jewish religious community of his day, and said, by the way, before you turn your nose up one more time to the rest of the non-Jewish world, you're no better. And Paul said, remember, I'm one of you. You are also under wrath because you actually have the written word of God and you break it all the time too. He summarized chapter 1 and 2 this way in Romans 2.11. God does not show favoritism when it comes to wrath. Paul, trying to get his Jewish audience to respond to the gospel, often required that he try to show them their need for the gospel because, of course, they were convinced that their own religiosity or their own standing or their own possession of the law would deal with any sin problem. But it's the same for all of us gathering here and watching and listening. We, we live our lives, many of us, thinking that our intelligence... Our current positions, our many acts of kindness, our religiosity, thoughts like, but I really am spiritual, I give so much for others, none of them, Paul says, will move the living God. Our wealth, our power, our position, our race, our color, our nationality, our heritage, the worldview we hold to, our education, our, our deep religion, or our anti-religiosity, none of it will count for anything, Paul says, whether you're Jew or not a Jew, right-believing or even wrong-believing, the measuring rod he has declared to us will be the same for all of us. Simply put, 
God will deal with every human being with faultless discrimination. Now, before Paul addresses the sin issue one last time in Romans 3, he needs and he chooses to speak to his own community again, that Jewish religious community of his day, because he understands that what he has said is so offensive. In the last chapter, he basically has undermined generations of misunderstanding and prejudice and religious arrogance and bluntly said to himself and to that community, you actually have taken for granted God's love, his calling. So in turn, we have not done our jobs of introducing to the world the God that knew us and loves them too. The bad news is we are no better, he wrote, than the messed up world we have tried to avoid and looked down upon our whole lives and thought God was pleased when we did it. Sorry, he wrote, being a child of Abraham, having or keeping the law, circumcision just doesn't cut it, no pun intended. (laughs) But it's true. Paul turns and says to his community, honestly, we need to walk through this very carefully. So Paul, knowing what was about to take place, in chapter 3 at the beginning, responds to three major criticisms that would come from a confused or angry crowd. Romans 3.1 reads like this. Read along with me. What advantage then is there being of a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? He responds, much in every way. First of all, we have been entrusted with the very words of God. Listen, Paul would say. I'm not saying that we don't have any value. We do. We are God's elect. We are chosen out of all the other nations. We have the very oracles of God himself. As one poet penned years years and years later, they and only they amongst all mankind received the transcripts of the eternal mind, uh, were trusted with his own engraved laws and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets. Theirs was the priestly call and theirs by birth the savior of us all. Yes, Paul would say, we have unimaginable privilege, but with that great privilege comes immense responsibility. Paul is pleading, not condemning his community, to see the tragedy that they have so focused their attention on privilege, they have become religious and arrogant, and they have forgotten that the world is still in darkness. The second complaint would go like this, well, Paul, You seem to be attacking God's promises to us as the Jewish community. How can you say that we as faithful Jews cannot be secure in the promises God has given us that are so numerous, I remind you, we almost can't count them all? And and how about this too, Paul? Does the failure of us as a people stop the providence and sovereignty of God in the world? Paul wrote it this way in verse 3. What if some people don't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says not at all. Let God be true and everyone else just be a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God is God and will always accomplish everything he is desired to do. Never underestimate that. But then he goes further and says, you don't even truly understand the scriptures you've been reading for generations. As one summed this way, Paul's answer Though short here reflects both the explicit and implicit teaching of the Jewish scriptures. God never promised, hear this, that an individual Jew, no matter how pure the physical lineage from Abraham or other great saints, could ever claim that God's promises would happen apart from personal repentance, personal faith, resulting in obedience from the heart. Fine, Paul would say. Fine, okay. But you need to see the danger of your teaching. I mean, you're just saying this grace thing's given to us, so if we sin more and more and more, God's going to get glorified and we get covered, right? So maybe as good Jews, we should just keep on sinning. 
He says in verse 5, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, Paul would write. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and his glory increases, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying in some claim that we say, let's all do evil and good will result. And then Paul just says simply, their condemnation is deserved. No way, Paul says. How amazing that we as human beings would rationalize sin by thinking that it will bring God more glory. The more we sin, God gets more glory, and so we don't get wrath and everything goes well. Being made right before God through grace and faith alone does not give us a license to sin, but should lead us to love, not to lust. Listen, Paul would say. Listen, please. Let me just summarize in a few sentences what I've said to you for two whole chapters. Verse 9, hear it. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. As we've already made the charge, both Jew and non-Jew are all alike under sin. Now, if you're a highlighting person, electronic or otherwise, mark all under sin. It's important this morning. Notice that Paul does not say this morning that we are all under sins, plural, but sin. See, sinful action comes from us because we are under sin. We're under the dynamic of sin, under the power of sin. We are controlled by sin. Another said, listen, if sin was the color blue, every aspect of us would have a shade of blue. We are infected, Paul says, at the very core of who we are. We are morally ruined at our very roots. One thinking on this passage spoke to a 35-year veteran of the funeral service. And what he describes physically, Paul would say, is us all spiritually. He says, listen, we're just being honest, right? I've had every age, every race, every nationality, every size, every religion represented on my table. And when you cut them open and look inside, let me tell you something. They're all the same. And then he says these words, and let me reassure you, it is never pretty. Paul will turn around and say, that is the truth about all of humanity. One famous Russian poet sure got it right when he penned, I don't know what the heart of a bad person looks like, but I know what the heart of a good person looks like, and it is terrible. All of us, Paul says, have sinned. All of us are condemned. All of us under the wrath of God. All of us are under the dominion of sin. The very religious and unreligious, the kind and the unkind, the wicked, all of us. Babies, children, teens, young adults, adults, those who are just born and those who are dying at this moment. All of us are under the dominion of sin. And before we can raise our hand and object, before we say, not true and not fair, Paul then says these words. For it is written. For it is written. See, what Paul is about to do is a time-honored tradition with rabbis where they string together all sorts of quotations from God's word to almost like make a pearl necklace to make their case. This is the longest series of Old Testament quotations in the whole New Testament. Paul is going to quote the Psalms six times, quote from Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, And each scripture he is about to quote will prove our condition by exposing our character as humans, our conduct as humans, and the cause of our corruption as humans. He will simply say this, hear it this morning, 
All of us, he says, are universally under sin. And this produces unholy speech, brings violence, and in the end brings a a basic degradation and disregard for God. He starts with our condition. And let me say this morning, please listen to this. He says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one in right standing with God. Not even one. Our goodness, Paul would say to us, is not based on what we think or how we act. It is our life actually measured and compared to God himself. The unblemished one, the perfect one, the one whose name I remind you is holy. There is no person who is good enough. All of us get the rudest awakening when we look at the living God in the face and then look back at us. Our thoughts, our motives, our actions, all of them are exposed. There is no one who has lived or will live other than Jesus, who was God, who will measure up. Paul wants every one of us sitting here today and listening and watching today to know there is no back door. There is no exception. No one is righteous. But then he keeps going. Verse 11, there is no one, he says, who understands. And then here's the one that we really need to grapple with today. No one, he says, even seeks God. Understands, by by the way, means to bring together. Paul is saying no one can figure out the puzzle. No one can see the whole picture. No one can really understand in their nature by themselves what's really going on. No one can see the depths of God, his attributes, his work, his love. But then he goes uh, one step further and says something that truly is very offensive even to many of you as Christians, let alone the average person doing just the life thing in the GTA. No one, he says, seeks God. Not true, we cry out. Not true. I, I don't care what the Bible says. I know lots of people who are looking. Just go to chapters. Go and look on the blogs. People are searching everywhere. I mean, they're really, really seeking for answers. They're looking for God. And Paul says, oh, no, they're not. Oh, no, they're not. The question he would pose to us this morning is, why are they seeking? Is it to really know the living God, or is it to get something from God? Are they really seeking to give glory to the living God, or to feel better about themselves? Are they really seeking the living God, or do they want to be justified in their view of what they think should be done? Paul says, we do not honestly seek out the true living God or truth. We end up seeking idols and religion and humanism, and the list goes on and on. We seek a God that suits what we think he should be and what he should do, and the one that will justify our views on sex, money, and power. How many times in our culture have you heard this? Maybe you've uttered it. Well, God is love. He would never tell me. I'm sorry, I didn't know that you got to make up God. Paul comes to us and says, God must, hear this, seek us. Because we are never really seeking him. Because humanity is not spiritually sick, it's dead. If you're seeking the living God this morning for real, then you already know that God has called you to himself and it is only a matter of time before you embrace him. Why? Because once he calls you, you're done. You're done. The great example from Scripture is when Lazarus was sitting in the tomb for four days rotting and the smell was strong, it says, and then Jesus walked up and said, move it aside and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. That is what happens every time someone becomes a Christian. They're not sick. 
They're dead. And Jesus says, it's time. Paul continues on his unbelievably insightful rant. He says in verse 12, to our uncomfort, all of us have turned away as humans. We have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Turned away, by the way, means to bend. In other words, people bend away from God. As one said, the Lord designed us with certain needs that only God can fulfill. But rather than us coming to Him to satisfy those deep longings, we pursue fleeting, temporal, destructive substitutes. And in the end, those substitutes not only fail to fulfill our longings, they leave us more empty than before. Does anyone think that's true about our world today? We result... In becoming something that's so offensive but so true, it says in Scripture, we become worthless. We choose not to fulfill what we were made to be and do, to know God and enjoy Him forever. Again, Paul's words violate all we've been taught and all we've embraced as a culture. We hear even these words as Christians and we recoil and think, that's not me. That's not my family. That's too extreme, too much exaggeration. Paul, be careful what you say. How can you say there's no one who does good, not even one? This is, this is garbage. We all do good things. Yes, of course, Paul would say. We all do good things. But listen to me. Why do you do good things? We don't do them consistently or profoundly. And by the way, as one wrote, a good work according to Scripture is actually in conformity to the commands of God. It is actually a heart committed to honoring God, and no one habitually does this. And here's the tough question for us gathered this morning. How many of our good works, religious or otherwise, are really just about, ready, me? I do it honestly because it makes me feel good or look good. It makes me help someone else so I feel good. See, good works according to Scripture are about God, about loving God, about worship. See, if you don't know God through Jesus, you cannot love God. And if you don't love Him, you'll never want to worship Him. And if you don't want to worship Him, you will never ever do a good work because good works are about God, not about us. No one, Paul says, does good works, not even one. And if this wasn't enough, then he turns his gaze to our conduct. He says, our throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Isn't this an interesting passage to read on Halloween? I just find it interesting. All all the houses are all decorated with death. And I was driving here this morning going, yep, yep, yes, this is a great holiday to remind us of our condition. We as human human beings, Paul says, produce so much garbage from our minds and our mouths that it truly smells like dead bodies, and, and it's so deceitful, it's as deadly as a cobra's bite. Many scholars think that verse 13 is actually talking about religion itself. All false religions and worldviews continually teach us that salvation is promised if we just keep doing good things. They convince us, as one wrote, that, that if, if we just obey and we just do everything, then God will be pleased. Preaching a false religion is no better than convincing a cancer patient that aspirin will be a substitute for needed treatment. Their mouths, he says in verse 14, are full of cursing and bitterness. Now, this isn't just talking about swearing or bitterness against God and others, and we all know we've been there. This is actually, if you see the quotes that he's using, is talking about those who have money and power and live a life that they believe that they are in control and they have no sense that judgment really is coming. 
Paul says out of the Scriptures, our language, our motives, our pride, our replacement of God, he says that's just the truth. And then he says, just look around and you'll know what I'm saying is true. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. If there is two or three lines that summarize human history, right here. Would you not agree that this is our collective history? The veneer of civility lightly covers the savagery that lies beneath all of us. We don't know peace at our works. We don't know peace in our families, in our world. War, famine, death, rape, assault, abuse, drugs, human trafficking, and you can fill in the gaps. It was William Durant in his Lessons from History that reminds us, hear this, that in the last 3,241 years of recorded history, Only 268 years have not seen war. And before you say this morning, not me, John. No, that's not me. I don't murder, and I am a good person, and I don't bring misery and and all. Never forget that God knows everything. What about your thoughts? I mean, it's in our thoughts, right, where everything's real? Where we say what we really would have said to the person at 3 a.m.? It's where we trap people to humiliate them, to use them sexually, to assault and abuse others, to debase them, even to murder them. Our thoughts become the very ground in which the world ends up becoming a living hell for many others. And that is why the last thing that Paul says about humanity collectively is this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God in the Bible is not just about petrified fear because he is God and we are not. It's relational. It's awe, it's worship. It says in scriptures that the fear of God is the beginning of what? All wisdom. And Paul says, God, you joking? He's left our thinking. Paul in chapter 3 summarizes all of Romans 1 and 2 and says, To you who are Jews, to you who are not, to you who are religious and you who are not, To you who are good and you who are wicked, you who are educated and you who are not, you who are rich and you who are poor, no matter who you are, no matter your age or stage, let me remind you, sinful, separated, no excuses, period. Paul addresses his community. He talks very candidly through the Old Testament about our sin. And then he just stops at one moment here and follow this for a moment and sews up the argument by ending with the role of God's law. This is important for our community to understand this today. God did not give us the law knowing we could keep it. But he gave it because we needed to be unmasked. We need to stop believing in our own hearts and the world system that cries out, No, no, don't you understand? You were born good. No, you were not. When the world declares we're just fine, there's hope within us. We're not sinful, the Bible, the world says. We're sick. The Bible is wrong. Education, politics, counseling, personal achievement, money, power, sex, all of those things may be fine. But when they are declared as the remedy for our root issue, the Bible cries out, no. You think you're okay, but you're blind, you're dead, and you're under wrath. That is why he wrote in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that, ready, every mouth may be silenced, and here it is, and the whole world be held accountable to God. 
The law shows us the very nature of God, like we've learned as a community. God didn't wake up one day and go, "Mm, don't like murder today. He's a life-giving God. That's why he hates murder. Why does he value covenant relationships and marriage and hates adultery? He's a covenant-keeping God. Why does God come to us and say, do not steal? Because he's a gift-giving God. I mean, what's the song we used to sing? Every good and beautiful gift comes from the Father of lights. Right out of Scripture. In the Scriptures, as we read God's law, we see who God is, and then the law shows us our separation and our need for him. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Look at the teachings of Jesus and ask, do any of us really match up? No, not one. We are silenced by the damning evidence. And then the Bible says, in most scary of terms, we will all be accountable to him. One scholar said the image here is judicial. We are actually to picture a defendant closing his or her mouth with nothing left to say in defense as the prosecuting attorney is now finished. The defendant now needs to look up at the judge and it is now dawning on them that that only the mercy of the judge is left and they await sentence. Paul says in verse 20, there is no one who will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Here it is, ready? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Observing the law can mean three things. There's great debate between Christians today on what its meaning is. Some say this means it's about election. God called the Jewish people, and so you just can't be confident in the broadest sense. Others say no, they were actually meaning in the first century, they just literally possessed the law. Others believe, no, no, this is meaning that Jews actually believe that they could, you know, get saved by, what it, by, by obeying the law. Well, whether it's about position or performance or possession, Paul says, you cannot be saved by what you have or who you are. We are not saved by what we do. The law just shows us one thing, our sin, our our separation, our need for an external Savior. We become conscious of sin. I don't know if you know that today also is Reformation Day. Does anyone know that anymore? A few hands? Yeah. No. For 300 plus years, Christians today have celebrated the Reformation, where a man named Martin Luther stood up and said, I love the Holy Catholic Church, because he did. But I think we've got away from Scripture. And Martin Luther penned these words about this verse, and they are so beautiful and needed. Martin Luther said the principal point of the law is in true Christian theology is not to make people, ready, better, but worse. That is to say it's to show us our sin, that we may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means then driven to seek the comfort of the living, blessed Christ. But thank God, he writes, for his law. Thank God for his relentless, loving confrontation of our problem. Another preached, God gave us the law because he knows the bad news of our terminal condition, but then it leads us to good news. It's treatable, the Bible says. There's a cure. Best of all, the cure is 100% effective and free. Small wonder we as Christians call the good news good news. Most people don't touch this passage anymore. Most people cringe at this passage because it conflicts with so much we've been taught. But the question we need to ask this morning as we end right here is this. For us who are believers and us who are not. I mean, what's the take-home? I mean, really, what do we take home from this very difficult passage? Well, there is one major item 
that as a fellow journeyer, I want us to think about, whether here or listening or watching, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, God is speaking through his living word at this moment and saying to us that we need to come to grips with sin. Without this understanding, unless we see the world, hear this clearly, through the lens of Romans 3, almost every take-home from church and practice will be misunderstood or wrongly applied. Listen to what one pastor wrote. We can easily miss miss the precise wording of verse 9 and its significance. Paul does not say, as I've already said, that people commit sins as if doing things contrary to God's will is an occasional problem. Paul doesn't even say that people are, catch this, sinners, suggesting that sin is a a persuasive problem or uh, at all. Rather, he says that people are under sin. Paul uses this kind of language to speak of a situation of domination, slavery. Paul then says the human plight is not that people commit sins or even that they're in the habit of committing sins. The problem is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. It was like when I was a youth pastor. (laughs) My goodness, Christians sometimes. And people would say, oh, I tell my friends to stop swearing. Why? They go, well, you know, it's not nice. I know it's not nice, but why are you telling them? Other than if you'd like to improve their English, I'd be great with that. But why? Because it's sin. I said, but they can't do it any other way. They're under the... Do you really think by just changing a habit, you can change the heart? Well, that's what church taught me. Oh, my goodness, we're in trouble then. Hear what this person said. By contrast, we need to understand that this is about slavery, not about morals. And and why is it important? Mainly because our understanding of someone's problem dictates the answer to that problem. Marxists and communists for the last hundred years insisted that the basic human problem was a wrong distribution of wealth and money. So they set up governments to deal with that and it didn't work. By contrast, many great philosophers and moral teachers in history of the world have been convinced, and many of you here believe this too, that the basic problem of human beings is that they're just ignorant. The solution, of course, is teaching. It's, it's knowledge. That is, teach people, and they'll be made into better people. And the problems of the world will disappear. Well, as Dr. Phil goes, you know, how's that working for you? The most mystical belief held in our culture, and it persuades our society, is this. Pervades our society. Many politicians propose programs based on this very assumption. In recent months, this one person writes, there has been a blizzard of advertising encouraging children not to smoke across the U.S. The assumption is clear. Teach children how foolish it is and dangerous it is to smoke, and then they'll never start. But if Paul is right, the problem to pursue the analogy is not that children are tempted to smoke. The problem, rather, is that many children are part of an environment in which peer pressure leads them to smoke. They may acknowledge smoking is a bad habit and they don't want to start, but they, here it is, don't have the ability to resist the peer pressure. They are, as it were, enslaved to that pressure. And what Paul says and the Bible says is this about the human condition or predicament. People by nature are addicted to sin. They're imprisoned by sin. They can't free themselves by anything they do. And knowing this, then God, thank God, did not send us just a teacher or a politician. Here it is. He sent humanity, ready? A liberator. One who has the power to set us free from our sins. 
Teaching is a good thing, he says, of course. I'm a professor. I do it all the time. But teaching is not the answer to humanity. You that are not Christians that join us this morning, hear this clearly. You need liberation. Not money, not more sex, not more power, not friendship, not a spouse, not more education, not more meditation, not more religion that continually says, we'll just strive to earn God's favor because it will never be enough. Or says, I'm a good person, just look what I've accomplished. It will never be enough. You need liberation from an addiction that you were born with. Though this passage I'm about to read below is written to Christians, it's a description of a church in Revelation. It is a a brilliant summary of you that have not accepted Christ yet, and it was all of us before we did. You say that I'm rich. You say that I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. This is our culture. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. God says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, to put medicine on your eyes so you can see. We as Christians hold fundamentally that liberation from the ills of the world, which are rooted in being under the dominion of sin, comes only from one person, and his name is Jesus. His work, his love, his holiness, his faithfulness, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He came so people could have life and life abundant. And Jesus comes to you today, you who are not believers, and says, you think you are in control. You think that religiosity or being nice will liberate you. It will never do it. I am the liberator. Embrace me. I will embrace you, and you will be free. Paul later will write these words And this is his challenge to you today. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you acknowledge who he really is, and believe in your heart that God really raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you, as a person who has never met Jesus, would surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, admit your sinful condition, and trust in Jesus for your now and your life to come, you will be, the scriptures say, liberated. You will be given freedom. You will be saved. The question that comes to you this morning that will give you life or will haunt you for the rest of eternity is best said by a great guy named C.K. Chesterton. Hear it closely today. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Jesus himself at this moment on October 35th for thirst says to you, Freedom. Liberation or slavery, the choice is in your hands. Romans 10.9 is given to you, and if you today would confess that in your heart, that you believe Jesus is Lord, believe he's been raised from the dead, and just say, Jesus, set me free, he will. Many of us have been set free in this place. We go back sometimes, but we have been set free. And I asked myself the question and wrestled with God what to say to our community I mean, what's the take-home for us? And I came back to a theme that I think God is trying to pound into our community at this moment. And it's this. As we read Romans 3 carefully and honestly, we should be people that are unbelievably thankful. 
I mean, grateful in an unnatural way. That God saved us from us. That Jesus took all of the above on himself so we could know God, that we are actually free, that we don't need to live under the power of sin. Only when we see ourselves as Christians under the last 20 verses do we really then grasp verses like Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love for us like this. While we were still under the dominion of sin, Christ died for us. Hear this this morning. No, look up and listen now. While we were under sin... Well, we were not righteous. Well, we did not understand God. Well, we were not seeking God. Well, we had turned away. Well, we were doing no good. Well, our lives and words reflected an open grave full of poison, cursing, and bitterness. Well, we were quick to shed blood actually or in our minds, causing misery and bringing death, not peace. Well, we did not fear God. Christ died for us. You can say amen at this point. So many of us who've grown up in the church, especially third-generation Christians, forget that this has been our grandparents' experience or our parents' experience or ours. So many of us forget the mission of Jesus because we don't believe Romans 3, because we, pe- we think people are sick. They're not lost. So many of us in here have stopped being thankful and stopped serving and loving the church because we've forgotten what's been done for us. And by the way, just a side note, do you now understand why all your attempts to bring people to Jesus don't work without the gospel? The only thing that will work to bring someone in this condition is to pray because that is where the living power of God moves and to share the gospel in many different forms. I don't care how you package it, but to share the good news of Jesus. It is the only thing that has the dynamite, the power of God to bring someone to salvation. You can be good enough, kind enough, smile your whole life as a Christian, but if you don't share the good news of Jesus, the dynamite, the power of God, will not be released, and people will remain in Romans 3 until hell. Paul gives this to us so we become thankful. Paul gives this to us so we become sober. Paul gives this to us so we understand that, again, it is a sovereign act of God, and salvation is a God thing, and we just get to be his hands and feet. Because when we come to the place where we realize it's about God and his work, and we're just vessels, suddenly there's freedom, because it's not our responsibility to really make them get in, but it also mobilizes us, because we start really believing that that was us once, and we don't want anyone else to be there, do we? And with this, we gathered in this church, our prayer is to reach 10,000, God-given thing. We acknowledged even last week that we're struggling and welcoming, but also in evangelism. And I just suggest to you today one of the reasons why we struggle in evangelism. There's a lot of reasons, and we'll start addressing them. But one of the major reasons is We just don't believe Romans 3. I encourage you this week to go home, reread it, pray about it, be thankful, ask God what it means to you and to your neighbors and your friends, and ask God to give you a new pair of glasses so when you walk around at the mall and at work and in your family and with your friends, you start saying, that's their condition. What do I do now? God gives us difficult words so people can be free. We will be thankful. 
and he will be glorified. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, oh, good Savior, friend, merciful one, we come to you right now and we join again millions of Christians around the world, billions actually, we join all those that are already in your presence and we just want to say one thing, thank you. You didn't have to do this for us. Lord, forgive many of us that have forgotten this. Lord, for others who have not embraced you yet and are resisting you, we pray you'd call them and meet them and transform them. And us as a community, we just pray that your word would be so rooted in us as a church that we would understand what reality really is. So my prayer for myself and all of us is we'd be thankful that we'd rely on prayer and the power of God through the gospel and that you would begin bit by bit to continue to transform our community into a people that take this seriously and understand what's happening in front of us. Last thing we just want to say, Jesus, is we can't even put into words sometimes what we feel that you did for us. But, but we do want to say that um, we not only thank you for dying, we forget a lot of times in this church to thank you for even just calling us in the first place. So thanks for setting up all the conversations. Thanks for all the people that helped us meet you. Thank you for parents or friends or strangers. Thanks for all the prayers. Thanks for all the seeking us. Thanks for hunting us down when we were running from you. Thanks for the Christian family if we grew up in one or the friend that came and introduced us. Thank you, Lord, for just always after us and then applying your work for us. Thank you that you would take us with our middle finger up and closing that hand and turning it around and letting it be open to you. Just, it's kind. And I just pray, that last thing comes to my mind. I pray you'd break arrogance in this church. God, just spare us as a church from ever becoming arrogant Christians. Where we're so good or better than the world. And we forget what we've been saved from. Just make us broken people, we pray. And thankful people. Uh, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.